everyone. Welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. I'm Ryan Egbert, your host for today, and I'm excited to have a guest, Henry Zumbrun, the president of Morehouse Force. Now, Morehouse Force is best known for their amazing force press machines and load cells, at least for guys like me that have come from the military labs. I've been using their equipment my entire career and at many different places, not just military, but also civilian places. And Morehouse is actually celebrating an anniversary this year, their 100th year as a company, and Henry has been there for over 25 of them. He started work at Morehouse in 1995, uh, been the president since 2013. And if you've been around the Metrology LinkedIn and Facebook circles, you've probably seen the vast amount of training he puts out there for the community. He's written over 100 articles and blogs relating to force measurement problems and how to solve them. He also describes himself as an avid beer enthusiast with a passion for helping others make better measurements because he truly believes that if we all improve our measurements, we all will make the world a safer place, which I totally agree with. Among his other accomplishments, uh, he's a Six Sigma black belt, a lean champion, technical advisor for several organizations, and he made sure to let me know that he... Uh, if I'm listing off his accomplishments to that he uh, completed potty training by two years of age. So you can tell he has a, a great sense of humor and doesn't take himself too seriously, but provides some amazing information for us calibrators out there. So I'm extremely happy to have him on the podcast today. So let's go ahead and go over to that interview. Thanks for listening. Henry, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you joining me. Absolute pleasure to be here, Ryan. Now, remind me, I can't remember if you've done a podcast before. Did you say you have been on one before, or is this your first? I've been on podcasts before. This is the first with sign calibration and the first speaking directly to the metrology community. So very excited about that. Oh, cool. So you've been in podcasts not involving calibration? Correct. Uh, I was I oh, was on okay. I, I was on some uh, you know future business leaders or you know tell us what you do those 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 type of things. There's a there's one I was on uh, Shrimp Tank on iHeartRadio that was uh, lots of questions about uh, just the company culture and everything everything to do with interesting me- everything to do. We talked about measurement, but not to not to not to this community, the one that will be listening to this podcast. Right. Gotcha. Well, I definitely wanted to start out with some background on you and the company because I know I'm speaking for myself personally. I've been using Morehouse products the entire my entire career. I told you that when we met, and outside of knowing that it's very good quality products and good standards, as I got to know you, I you know then I started to learn about the long history and everything. I was wondering if you'd be willing to kind of talk about where Morehouse has been, where they came from, some of the the reasons why, you know, way back why they started and why we and then uh, why we exist. Yeah. Yeah. Why why are you guys around? I don't know. <laughs> Luck. It's with any business, right? Luck. 
Uh, yeah, who, being back from 1925. Yeah, that is a lot of. That's the worst part of it. So yeah, I, I, I'm happy to share share that. Uh, we found out we were 100 years old. Uh, actually, found out looking at the records. We didn't even know ourselves. Uh, we just knew we made the first proving ring in 1925. Uh, however, we found some articles of incorporation, and, and and recently we hung them on the wall. And we were actually first founded March 15th, 1920. So the the year of 2020, we are 100 in this year yeah. that is uh, not the greatest year in the world to celebrate your 100th anniversary. Uh, we have not had big luncheons, gatherings, or anything else because we turned 100 just as uh, COVID hit. So that, that, right. that has not been fun. The company was actually, the, the name of the company, Morehouse, people people often ask. Uh, I remember when I go to the bank, the, the name on our uh, checks was Morehouse Instrument Company. And a, a few times the teller would ask, what type of instruments do you make? Like they were interested in a guitar or something. So it was like, ah, after the, after the third <laughs> time, it's like, ah, well, what is this? You know, maybe we should right. change the name. So um, knowing that, uh, I, I actually started in 1994, then, then took a took a bit of a break to go to college and do other things. Worked work some point part at the summer, and then officially started in '99, pretty much full time, where these these types of things could start getting annoying. And and uh, at that time, the the web, uh, the World Wide Web, was starting uh, back then when you had nice nice products like uh, you know Ryan's favorite Netscape Navigator. I know I know you're big. Oh one. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you had the dial up AOL and everything else. And around somewhere around that time we started thinking about you know the name morehouse instrument company what does it what does it really really uh mean uh where's it come from why are we called this um uh, previously we were a machining company so it was morehouse machine company they changed the instrument because they were making high precision instruments and then uh more recently everything's just you know mh force we just use the uh the the web address and everything else but still still the morehouse brand is strong it was, uh, we retained the name because the, the founder was, uh, uh, they call him Mr. Morehouse. Everybody called him Mr. Morehouse. It was W.S. WS hmm. Morehouse of York. And he had, a, he had another co-partner, uh, another Morehouse uh, that was a co-partner, but I don't know much about. Uh, they When they founded in March in March 15th, they draw, drew up those letters of incorporation. Uh, and when they founded, it was Morehouse Machine Company. And it started as a local machine shop in, in York, PA. And my, my, I had the privilege that my great grandfather was the guy around town that could get everything done. And so you're, you're in 1920, you have a startup and you're going to go solicit work, uh, machine work. And the rumor is Harry Zumbrun, which would be my great grandfather was, was the guy, he came from San Diego. He was in the air Corps. He was hmm. able to work and figure out solutions. And a numerous people in York knew him as the guy that if he can't figure it out, no one in town could. So based on that, they started getting machine machining work and, and more complex type of machining work. I'd like to say that led to uh, uh, the development of the proving ring. However, there's a, there was a relative uh, back in 19, in the 1920s, there was a relative of uh, Mr. Morehouse that worked for, back then it was NBS, the National Bureau of Standards. And there was a relative that worked for Mr. Morehouse um, that worked at what now is NIST, the National Institute of Standards Technology. And they had this mm -hmm. idea for a design. And that idea was for the proving ring. And and they worked to, together. Uh, I believe the, the gentleman's name was uh, Petrinko. 
And they worked together, but the only reason they really worked together was, you know, uh, the, the family ties and that we were a machine shop within two hours of, of, of NIST Gaithersburg. So why okay. we really so like a convenience thing there. Well, it's an interesting thing because you say, Hey, you've, you've been in business a hundred years. You must've done something right. Uh, right. Going through, I, th- I've thrown out, you know, thousands of pounds of paperwork that they stored. Uh, when you go back through some of the records, you can't keep it all. For one thing, I'm not a, a, a my my wife may argue it, but I, I try not to be a hoarder. <laughs> uh, we all collect different things. Uh, I like right. the, I like to digitally collect now because it's it it takes you know only the space on your hard drive. However, um, they they saved everything uh, back in those days, and you know wrapping paper uh, after they unwrap gifts, they brought in wrapping paper, and there's drawings that are were done on wrapping paper because it, it was really uh, weekly. Uh, they lived hmm. week to week. And, and really what the, the, the start of the company happened uh, because of the machine shop and because of my great-grandfather, though falling into force kind of happened is, is some luck. And, and what, what was happening back in the 19th and 20th century were you know, boilers and steam engines were exploding. They didn't have a good way to calibrate the hardness. You know, there was a demand for products. Oh, you know, the steel manufacturing, the lots were, were not consistent. And there was really a demand to know that strength of material. So, you know, when a boiler blew up, the material was thrown all over, you know, imagine like a huge bomb and often oh, yeah. resulted in mash ca- casualties, you know, ship plates. Uh, you know, we were starting to build ships. I know, Ryan, you were in the service. You've been on several of the right. ships, but probably none that were built yeah, in the 1920s. However, in the 20s, they had problems uh, with the ship plates. Uh, you know, riveting things together. You go in the cold water, different material will contract and expand. And some of it would bring, you know, uh, some of that would actually cause the ship to spring leaks. Um, and then recently would I was you- reading, uh, it was even speculated that uh, the Titanic, everybody knows about the Titanics, uh, mm-hmm. that there was a fire on board and the fire actually contributed to the weakening of of the ship when it eventually hit the iceberg which resulted in it sinking now would have would it have sunk without that fire i I don't know uh but it but it is interesting that the you know these these things came up so it's the the realization that the hardness of material was you know was going to drive everything that was built and in order to determine the strength of the material uh they needed something to test uh that the material was strong enough to withstand the forces exerted on it Manufacturers, testing machines were out. They were using pressure-based. I know sign calibration, there's the plug, the pressure-based transducers and everything, or, you know, the course <laughs> load that you have now is a lot different than it was in the 1920s because in the 20s, sure. it was pretty rough. And they needed a way to calibrate these types of, you know, Burnell testing and the other ones, they needed a way to ensure uh, and adjust those, those machines in essence, and that's when the proving ring was created. It was uh, created to do Brunel hardness testing, uh, really rough at NBS. They did not have the deadweight machines they have now. I think they had a deadweight machine that could hit five of the six points. They would hit 500 kilograms, thousand. Uh, I think they couldn't do 1500, so then they'd do 1500. Uh, they, they'd interpolate it, do 2000, 2500, and 3000. And 
that's what happened. Uh, and the whole the whole revolution of the proving ring was because that hydraulic cylinder that was used in that test frame to test the material was 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 described as inaccurate at best. That's the quote I like. You know, inaccurate at best. Oh, yeah. That's a good way. To, <laughs> that's a good way to say awesome. it. So so the history really was to you know because of that need uh, and the boilers explode and the need to know the hardness of material. That, that really drove uh, Morehouse to work with NBS. And and really, at that time, I mean, people will say now, the proving ring, that's an analog device. But really, in 1925, that was the best instrument for force measurement in existence. Uh, I mean, it was the best in the world. You, you, can, you can claim that. And now, of course, there's lots of instruments that are better. We've progressed over the sure. last hundred years. The proving ring is not the end all be all, but it but it is really interesting on 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 how that came about and in some of the history. That naturally got us into force, uh, you know, the force world. It was slow. Um, it was really really slow and hard back in the 20s. In fact, my grandfather tells the story of his great grandfather uh, dying, and he said, "We just got an order for eight proving rings." And uh, my great grandfather, on his deathbed, kind of looked at him in disbelief, like, "You don't have to lie to me now that I'm dying." So that would have been the biggest order that that they had got into the time, and and the, my great grandfather just knew not, you know, thought my uh, grandfather sure. was <laughs> was well was, in the applications, <laughs> you know. Uh, now as technology has gone forward, I mean, forces so important but i'm sure back then you know they weren't quite sure what to no. all the ways to use them yet no they were they were trying um and you know there we, we have uh we're very active uh for people that are interested in, in the blog posts and the press and we just put out uh, a few weeks ago we just put out you know 100 years and products and it shows uh it's one of my favorite posts because i just looked through our old history uh we did not throw out any of the pictures of course and, it, you know, we nice, were into yeah. making wire testers. We were making brick testers. They were making a, a, a machine in a foundry called the Unipore that was designed to, you know, take, allow one person to do a job that it took three people to do. So they were really trying to find their way for a long time and make things. Uh, of course, the joke is that, you know, the, br the brick tester, there's there's companies that are publicly, publicly traded that are worth, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that got into the, you know, the testing machine world where, oh, sure. where we stayed in proving rings and cow machines so yeah we're not we're not near as big and it's nice uh it's a it's a it's a great place to to work and it's a nice culture uh when you have when you have you know 30 some people you work with that's uh that's something that's nice every day you know everybody you know who who's doing what and everybody chips in and it, it allows you to be better as far as teamwork and serving the customer also for that, sure you yeah you guys are definitely very responsive. I even when I was a lab manager, and I mean, you know the the lab I used to work at, and the, the people there would reach you, and you're always very available. I think that's the one really across the board. The the things I hear about you is that you're always trying to help people out with training and you're always available to help the customer. I think that's pretty impressive. That's drives business. I mean, the, my favorite book, I, I don't know where we're going with metrology, but for those that, that don't, you know, uh, I can, I can venture out a little bit and say one of my favorite books is, is good to great. Uh, that's, uh, uh, Jim Collins wrote it and it's, it's all about, you know, people. It's, uh, you know, what can you do? What can you be the best at? And, and, and we know our, you know, we know we are a client based business. We're not going to deny that, you know, there's, 
roughly three types of businesses that exist, you know, either do the, mm -hmm. you have client focus, you have logistics, or you have the, the ones that are, you know, the, the real innovators that are first to market on everything. So, you know, mm -hmm. our, our niche is really just to be that client focus and focus on what matters. And that's education. That's, you know, doing this today is fantastic. Uh, I hope that we're going to talk about something where someone could say, oh, yeah, that this is going to help me make a better measurement. I listen to this. I have some ideas to take back to, you know, my boss or maybe you're the boss. I have I, some ideas I, I need to take back to my team where we can start and we can do some things to, to make better measurements because, you know, you know, our, our goal is really to bend over backwards to meet the customer expectation. And then our the, the secondary goal is to help everybody, um, you know, help everybody make better measurements because the measure, measurements we make matter. You know, I, I often say, Ryan, this yeah. is, I tell people, people, sometimes people want to give you money and you feel guilty about taking it when you do not do the right things. And that that is one of the things with the culture. People need to pay for calibration. I know some people think it's a necessary evil. It's not. When you have that relationship with the customer and you can figure out how they are using the device and you can figure out how you can best replicate that and you can give them something that's meaningful, it's so much better when you charge for that versus somebody that says, hey, I just need a sticker. Put this sticker on right. things and send it out the door. That That is not... I mean, we're like anybody else. If somebody wants to do that, uh, we still want to have those discussions. If, but if somebody wants to do that, we've had some please calibrate. We start asking questions. They're like, we just want this. And then it, it, it demoralizes almost everyone in the company at that point because everybody, the culture is such, everybody wants to help one another and we're not sure. able to help other people when we get that. You know, we're not right, going to, we don't sense. turn down the business, um, but we certainly don't like it. And we always try to work with everybody and especially those customers to try to get some knowledge to them and in hopes that they will change some of their ways and start to understand why calibration is important and why, and, and why, why it matters. So people, customers first, because without the customer, we're not going to have, have the business to, to employ more people. And then the people having the right people in the right seats uh, is just really important. And we're at that stage in after a hundred years, we're at that, that stage where we're, you know, often stressing things like COPQ, the cost of poor quality, uh, diverse sure, engineering yes. teams. You know, we have, we have mm -hmm. an engineer that has over 25 years in load cell design. You know, it's, it's, it's like, like I said, our staff, everybody wants to chip in. Everyone wants to learn. Everybody wants to help people because we all realize that the measurements we make can impact your life more than what the people out there listening may feel. Like when they drive over a bridge, do they? Do, when you drive over a bridge ride, you think, hey, I wonder if they got all the stresses and strains and everything right as I'm driving over it. Do, you may, right. you, yeah. may, you may because you're in this field. I certainly do. You know, I, I read the- Well, I read the, I'll be I honest, I would, I'm- I'm one of those, you know, I didn't, there's a lot of those measurements out there, even from opening a, you know, the, the, the force it takes to open a package of something, you know, that gets tested. Those things oh, I yeah. never thought of, you know, I never yeah. did until I, until I met you guys. The most inconsistent one is drywall spackle. I mean, they make machines to test this, but anybody that's ever opened spackle, I always joke about it. It is very inconsistent. Sometimes I can open spackle no problem. And other times I'm like damn near ripping off my fingernail. So. <laughs> if you've had oh that. yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's testing everywhere someone goes to cast their fishing line 
you know, that's tested. Uh, you know, if you're going to catch that big fish, is it going to break? I mean, that's not probably not going to kill you if if your fishing line breaks, but you're going to be pretty darn disappointed if you got you got a, you know, an sure. awesome bass or something on there and, you know, you start reeling it in and the line breaks because of inferior testing. Though, so, yeah, the whopper, your whopper is on the line, you know. <laughs> your whopper's on the line. But it's everything. I mean, you know, almost every material item is is somewhere tested at some point, uh, whether it's lots or everything else. And and we were fortunate that we can and help uh we're at the top of the pyramid when you start looking at uncertainties and you start looking at everything else of course you know everybody uh we all bow down to the si um mm-hmm. you know but then after the si you, you start looking at nmis and fortunately we're we're in this this country fortunately has an excellent nmi uh this national institute of standard technology is fantastic and they have the world's largest dead weight machine for force measurement it goes up to uh you know, four point or it's four point four um, mega newtons or one million Whoa. pounds of force, and yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's 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 a lot, and we're fortunate that we have that in this in this country. And they just tore it apart and rebuilt it, and they just just did they just do an awesome job. Uh, we just had weights calibrated there for another dead weight machine, and they're just they're just so good at what they do on on all ends of things. So we're fortunate. In this country, that that we can rely on NIST, uh, high calibration sure. girls is the the negative part of it. Though we can rely on NIST for traceability, uh, traceability mm-hmm. to SI th- through an NMI such as NIST, where they can calibrate our weights, they can adjust the weights adjusted for force, for uh, material density, for air buoyancy, for you know local gravity. They can do all this, and they can do it within you know within several grams on an 8,000 pound weight, which is, which is absolutely yeah, which amazing. Which is crazy. Which is absolutely yeah, awesome. amazing. Just absolutely awesome. So we're lucky we have that and that time, that part of that traceability, but it doesn't start there. It doesn't stop there. It's not just metrological traceability. It, it's also that education piece because you may look at uncertainties. You can say, hey, Morehouse has really, really low uncertainties. Let's go there. But until you start, you know, putting the right adapters and putting the right system together and understanding the interactions, force is very mechanical in nature. And until you can understand those those interactions, uh, you're going to you may have large, very, very large error sources. And there's other, there are other people out there that just don't do do the right things, don't take the time, don't explain things, and just stick stick an instrument in a piece of in a machine and slap a sticker on it. That is not what we do. So that's that's really what I get around, and that's what our team is. Like I said, that's part of being client focused, uh, and you know the success from that comes from really individuality and having a different view, yeah. uh, an idea to make something better, uh, and. And we also use a creative process. We are we're always trying to solve customer problems. As as we as we spoke today, we have one where we're waiting on UPS, and they right. may not yeah. be here today. So that's uh that's like now we're scrambling, you know, uh, pre to date us a little bit. Uh, yeah, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. Now we're scrambling. Like, hey, are we going to be in? You know, is one of us going to be in on Thanksgiving? Who knows? I don't know yet. We'll find right. out later. Um, but yeah, well, and I, before we go, before we go too far, because I do want to round back to, um, here in a minute to some of the problems that you've seen out there, but before we go too far on that, um, I wanted to briefly talk about you and, you know, people that are aware in the metrology community, you know, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, you know, they're going to see a lot of, uh, articles and things from Morehouse and specifically from you as well, which are fantastic. 
When did that start for you? You know, the, you, I know you've been with Morehouse for 25 years, you know, or yeah. more. I, I, I'm not sure. But it, it feels like a lot of this innovation and, and this openness to the community starts with you. And, and did you or were you the one that kind of felt interested in training? Is that one of your passions? Uh, it wasn't. Um, so the, I, I love the question because it, it goes a, a dear departed. Uh, I, w- I would say like people that knew him, Dave Neville. Uh, he he was at a NCSLI conference and 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 wrote me in one time. He said uh, he he said hey, we're looking for someone to do this. It's really easy. You just give them a couple breaks and you do the training and you do that. I'm like, you know what? That that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> so yeah. So it wasn't that easy. <laughs> I mean, when you develop your first course, it's it's a lot of work. And you know, back then, this is 2010. Back then, you go into Kinkos to get color copies because we didn't. We, the color printer we had was too slow, and didn't produce. Uh, oh sure. Didn't produce. A, so so go get this all together. Try to gather as much information as possible. Then you're there to present. And 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 that's you know that's tough. The first time going oh, through yeah. it and presenting and and teaching and trying to understand people and trying not to be boring. The last thing, when I do this, the last thing I want to do is be boring. And I push, sometimes I push pretty far. I mean, we were at a NCSLI conference uh, several times and, and, and the one that I thought was the, was the best, I'm, I'm presenting something on, on propagation, uh, forced propagation uncertainty. And uh, the, the gentleman from NIST spoke before me. That I came up and it says it's like you guys just saw El- Elvis and uh, now you're now you got to sit through Herb Albert and I did not bring my Tijuana brass, <laughs> so I'm cracking awesome. up. I'm cracking myself up. Like how far can I go? And there's like three people in the audience out of like a hundred people that laughed at that. I'm like cool. There's three people that know who Herb Albert is. <laughs> <laughs> I would have laughed. <laughs> so, but it's 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 fun. So you start with that. You, you do it a little bit and then it's like, well, how can I be better? The worst thing I want to do, I don't want to go sit there and, and read in front. And, and some of this material is a, a bit dry. So it's, it's, it's just always, mm-hmm. it's always, how can we be better? How can we help our customers? Uh, a lot of it comes from sales. It's, it's, it's really, um, it's uh, somewhat of a selfish effort to, to go out and do some of this because the majority of articles re- we write come from a customer pain point. And the feeling is uh, having a culture of continuous improvement. The feeling is if we can write that, if we can capture that, chances are somebody else is having that pain. And on on our side of things, if we have this now uh, a good article documented or written, somebody we find somebody else that's having the pain. We don't have to recreate the wheel. We have an answer and a solution for them right there and then. So that's that's part of it. So a lot of it's twofold. When you read an article, uh, you know, from me. It's it's usually grounded in something or either someone's ticked me off and I think they're wrong. That that hardly ever happens, um, <laughs> though, though, though that, that has happened. That is that is one that drives, you know, that negative like, hey, I, I just don't feel like what they're saying was right. Let me go do some research and and, and no, get, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and get out there. And there's other people that have legitimate problems that it's like, wow, I, I think I've answered this, you know, five or six, five or six times. One of them was um, one that came about where we wrote the uh, helped write the guidance document for, uh, for A2LA on force calibration. That one came about. I mean, I, I probably had answered a hundred some emails um, on on the topic where I, I could just sit there and say, "Hey, your type A contributors to this." And I, I one day I'm sitting on my phone taking an hour to you know type all this stuff up, and I said, "Boy, I, I really feel stupid." 
you know, this is something that I, you know, all the time that spent typing these emails, I could have, I could have written a document and, right. uh, and therefore yeah. we wrote the document. So a lot of that happens. I mean, there's technical papers on there. Uh, I've written over a hundred now uh, that really, it really started with the training. Uh, well, and I'll talk you, I'll talk you up a little bit. I yeah. mean, you you won multiple awards on these at NCSL conferences and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean that's that's awesome. That that last year, uh, since we didn't have a conference this year, uh, the yeah the last year having a even even having a, uh, a been be nominated for uh, a best paper considered did not win overall. One best uh, the one the one paper on calibration adapters uh, did win, and that was that was awesome. I mean, I I just felt so. Um, so so elated and so thankful of the uh, nice. measurement yeah. community. Uh, it's just it's just an awesome feeling, and it's it's something you know you go you go out and you want to help people, and when you get recognition for it, it is so freaking awesome. It just makes it it just it, it makes it a little bit worse as far as now how do I one up this one? <laughs> but, well, but it really is putting yourself out there. You know, I really respect that because I one thing I do know from putting together the the school, you know, I've talked to so many people that as potential authors or potential contributors, and they really have such a hesitation. I mean, well-respected and, and people that have been around for a long time, I know they know what they're talking about, but there's that hesitation of putting yourself out there and you being wrong, you know, or someone saying you're wrong. So I really respect that you actually go out there and, and Oh. Put yourself out there and, and then, you know, like you said, it's awesome when that works out. It's awesome when it works out. And when you're wrong, it's 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 horrifying. It's like, how how far are yeah. you going to stick your <laughs> neck out and can it get chopped off? At, yeah. At the NCSL conference last year, I mean, everybody's going around last year saying, oh, there's a feud between the, this this company. There's never any feud with anybody. That was funny because what what essentially happened is is someone said hey that's not the formula for tur which is test uncertainty ratio and they're like i've never seen that formula and i'm like uh you know you you kind of freeze when you're given a class and that's and that said you know during a class and you have 100 people in the room and that formula Oof. that that where we present comes from ansi z540.3 uh, where they where they start talking about what TUR is and what goes into the denominator. It's found there, and it's also found in ILAC P14. Though when somebody mm -hmm. that's very respected says something uh, along those lines, it, it, it does put you in your place rather quickly. Like, oh, my gosh, did I get this wrong? Is there something right? Here? So fortunately, um, for me at least, fortunately, I have a lot of good friends in, in, in metrology. I have a lot of good people uh, that, that I lean on. Uh, one of my closest friends is Dilip Shaw, which is an, he's an author of the Metrology Handbook. And I just mm -hmm. very, uh, very, very thankful uh, to have that circle of influence and people that, you know, where we could say, hey, did it, you know, do we need to correct our thoughts? Most recently, uh, there was a um, Root some squaring. Everybody wants to root some square, right? You know, RSS, sure. just RSS and multiply by two. Um, mm -hmm. For those that don't know what that means, that's a long explanation. So <laughs> not, not for root Instruction some on that is coming soon. <laughs> We're, that, that's just being covered soon. That's coming through soon. I think uh, NIST SOP, uh, the, the gum talks about it in section five. NIST SOP, I believe 29 breaks it down a, a lot better than, than what we're doing here. But a lot of people just want to root some square, multiply by two, say that's 95%, call it a day. Um, 
you know, when we start talking about that and you start having those discussions, it's like, hey, where where do we find this or where do we find that? And uh, the, the it's 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 really interesting um, how things develop, because five years ago, people were thinking, hey, if we if we have a, you know, a lot of a lot of different weights, we're, we're doing a, we're stacking weights and we're going to do an uncertainty budget that will just root some square all of our weights. Now, since then, Euromet came out with a new standard and ASTM came out with a new standard that basically said, hey, they, these weights have to be additive. Uh, when you're doing the uncertainty, you, they have to be additive. And yeah. and back in you know 2015, and uh, we were talking about some of this and, and the community was really split. And right now, you know, everybody's now five years later, everybody's in agreement that they have to be additive. So, you know, sometimes that happens. I think we're at a point uh, I'm rambling a little bit, but I think we're at a point now where there are certain parameters of of measurement where some things make sense and others do not. So the person that said, hey, I never saw that formula for TUR in their industry, they're just not using that. You know, they're 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 doing other things. And, and Ryan and I have sure. talked to, uh, and, and my theory on, on all of this is everybody in this community needs to ask themselves, do I want the risk? Do I want to take the risk or do I, do I want to pass the risk to my customer? And that's really what it comes down to. If you, if you're figuring TUR with minimal in the denominator, you're going to pass the risk to the customer, which is fine. If they all understand it, if the standards are written for it, there's nothing wrong with that. Or if you're doing it with, you know, taking account everything into consideration as, you know, the, the ANSI Z540.3 uh, uh, says that goes in the denominator, then you're going to absorb more of the risk. So as a lab, you're going to reject more, more, you're going to reject more equipment, which is going to take more of a workload on you. And us being client focused, back the full circle to being client focused, we'd rather mm -hmm. take a lot more of that risk. Uh, because we feel it's the right thing to do. We don't feel a customer should be weighing something and and saying saying along the lines, "Hey, I need this to be plus or minus, you know, uh, hundred. And oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got to do my guard banding. I really need this to be plus or minus eighty. Um, okay, when you make this measurement up here, even though the instructions we just said, even though that drawing and everything else says I need this to weigh plus or minus 100, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take measurement and uncertainty into account, and we're gonna we're gonna scratch that off and make it 80, which is fine. They can do it, but we just know that's not happening in industry. I know that on, no. the, on <laughs> yeah on calipers, the, we have a machine shop. We send drawings out that says, you know, for torque, uh, really interested if you're making torque adapters, we do we do torque and, and force uh, calibration. Uh, that Those that do not know us, we do uh, really accurate for both. We have the second most accurate uh, torque machine in the, in the well, world. You're a primary lab, right? For both? Primary lab for both. Uh, torque is mm -hmm. the, the first, is the most accurate machine in North America, second most accurate in the world because uh, PTB has the most accurate and that's the German NMI. So, wow. Yeah. So, so we do these things, but it's for us, it's it, again, our guys for torque, when we're making adapters, it's usually, you know, the, the measurements are minus zero plus five thousands, right? Cause if you go under and you have like a coupling adapter and you go under five thousands, sometimes it'll slip. If you're putting on a lot of, a lot of torque and you're, you know, uh, have a coupling adapter that's a little bit under, you can get to the point where it can actually slip. So we, we know, 
from doing it? How do you know? How, how do we know? Oh, how do we know? We know from making enough adapters when the when the machinists went negative five and we went to you know two thousand and the adapter started slipping and we said holy you know what uh expl- yeah <laughs> we said why is it we figured it out but the thing is we also i also know that none of them you know our instruments are calibrated our calipers are calibrated i also know that the guys in the shop um we have mostly males in the shop we do do we have female technicians and, and whatnot but mostly males in the shop in the in the production mm-hmm. uh would, would like that to sure. be different uh, of course um but the people in the shop they're not going to say Hey, I got. I need to measure this part to three thousandths, and and they're not going to subtract the thousandths or two thousandths for measurement uncertainty. They're going to say, "Hey, the drawing says this. I'm going to use this caliber. I'm going to see. I'm going to see what it, what it reads, and uh, I'm going to be. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good based on that, and I'm going to sign off on the drawing based on that. So, uh, again, exactly. It's just again, who absorbs the risk? That's uh, that's that's really the question I have for the community and and what side you're on on it. Should you want your your well, Cal Lab to do it, or do you want you to do it either way. Well, and a lot of that, you know, I know you said um, right at the, in the middle there, you know, is this, is this too much to go through here? If some of that, that you were just talking about and, you know, to the listeners, if you don't quite understand what Henry's talking about, that's why he's having all these webinars webinars. And this is why we're doing all this training. It's because a lot of these, these things aren't known around the industry. And I can, I can speak to that myself, Henry. I mean, I've been out in, like doing on-site calibrations or I'm visiting labs that are doing on-sites. And that's where I see the biggest suffering of force principles. The things that you talk about is when someone is trying to adapt to a stand or a device that they aren't prepared for on-site. You know, they show up there and they're like, hey, I'm just going to, I can wing some of these things together. But they don't understand how important all of those components are to a single force measurement. No, that's that's a great point because it's a mechanical interaction, and we've seen it. Um, you, you have stories. We have one guy that came in, and uh, he was in the area. We we had done we had done work for the for the company. We do you know we do calibrations for the company. He's in the area. He's verifying a machine, and he goes, he goes, I it's something's just not right. And we go, okay, uh, how close are you? He said he's like fifteen minutes away. He comes over. Comes over so happy. He said, "What? What? Okay, what are you doing? We we put the instrument in our machine, and it looks good." He's like, "Well, that's not what I was seeing." And we go, "Well, well, what were you doing?" He's like, "Well, I was seeing a, a difference of like point, you know, point three, and that's just not right. I know this machine is not right." So we say, "Well, what what are we missing?" And uh, he pulled out this chunk of steel. It was a uh, uh, aluminium. Uh, so aluminum for us, but the the the, the gentleman was British. <laughs> the gentleman was British sure. and said, "Hey, I, I have this aluminium," and uh, we put that on the top, and all of a sudden the difference was there. Uh, you know, it was it was right there. So he was using a really beat up top block made of aluminium instead of the block that we thought uh, they were using, like of a you know like of a hardness of like thirty eight or or something sure. along those lines. And they were getting pretty drastic readings. And since then, I mean, that was one that's, oh, wow, what else, are, what else is going on in the field? So for those that are listening, yes, the, 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 big, the big key points here are, are to make sure your calibration provider replicates how it's being used in the field. Now, the joke of it is that 
you know, that doesn't mean treat your equipment poorly. Uh, as one night I was watching History Channel and I saw a, a, a AP dynamometer, those that do not know what it is, that's like a, a big shackle type thing with a dial gauge. And I saw a tank being pulled on it and it was just bouncing up and down on the on the um, macadam, uh, just getting destroyed. I'm like, yep, that one's oh, not going to calibrate. That's going to come in our lab and someone's not going to be happy or someone's going to write something. So, <laughs> so, so the, but the goal is to take care of your equipment and to really replicate for the to have the discussions with the lab to replicate things because if they use a different cable, like a four wire instead of six wire cable, there could be you know point one percent difference. They use a different hardness of a top block. We've seen uh, you know up to a half percent difference. They use uh, on threading it in the, the load cells mechanical. It has female threads. Everybody says, "Oh, I'll just thread this stuff in." Well, if you thread to the shoulder, or if you thread and lock into the shoulder versus just plain threading in, you can have a half percent difference. So these errors are all around that people do not realize. Uh, one that I've seen happen a lot is where they say, oh, I don't have this thing. I'll just use a piece of threaded rod. Well, most threaded rod in the world, when you look at it, long enough pieces is, is fairly bent. Yes. So therefore, they're introducing t some type of side load into the system. Or they say, I'm going to go to Harbor Freight, I'll make a press, and that'll be my cow stand, and now I'll certify everything. You know, that could work. Uh, chances are it doesn't, because unless you have some kind of method to, to test that, namely, you know, another load cell or, or force measuring instrument calibrated uh, with traceable measurements, uh, ideally with primary standards, uh, you're not going to know what type of errors you have. So I, I'm a big believer in proficiency testing. I'm a bigger mm -hmm. believer uh, because I know there are very good proficiency test companies. Though that's only a snapshot and per uh, ISO IEC 17025 guidelines, you just need to have a four-year plan. I'm a much bigger b believer in having your own set of artifacts or check standards where you can sure. run statistical process control. And not only does can you run statistical, you can do your own interlaboratory comparisons with, with these items and you can well, know Henry, that's, that you're making the right that's something. That's something we're, we're looking at doing with the school as well as possibly having um, some DUTs, you know, some <laughs> devices that we can send out for performance evaluations. I with, love it. You know, known, known measurements, you know. I love it. We would we would gladly help you with that. And your listeners are here, so now you have to hold me to it. But yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, that's well, that and is, you know, that one thing. That I think a lot thing, of people yeah. like you. Oh, sorry. Uh, even yeah. the even the lower force limit. You you that was one I picked up from you as well. You know, I've seen it on your certificates before, and that's how I knew it uh, because I've had your load cells before, and on your certificates it says don't use it past you know lower than the lowest force uh, value tested. But that's something else that's not used, and I and I know for a fact that many people listening to this, uh, their stomachs probably dropped when you said threaded rod. <laughs> yeah, or eye bolts. I mean, rod ends. Rod yep. ends are. Rod ends are nice, but the bearings, when the bearings start to seize, you put, you, then you get friction. So things that may work today, uh, you really need a maintenance schedule because what may work today will not work tomorrow. I, I, I mean, we've been a big fan. Um, part, part of things in the company is always trying to, you know, continuously improve. And mm -hmm. the other thought is on the lab. Uh, and you see a lot now in Lean for the Lab. Back in like 2010, 11, 
we were trying to do every lean for the lab, everything point of use. You put everything in its place. Uh, you make card, you know, sometimes you take foam, you cut things out where your adapter should be. And that's, that's been a lot of the designs is, is to say, Hey, we, we need to make sure these things are straight. We need to make sure they're not going to introduce eccentric force. That would be like side loading. So if you're there, you know, imagine a straight line and then somebody comes down with something bent, they're not going to be able to pull in that straight line. And the reaction of the load cell is going to be very different and the output's going to change. So knowing all of this, we kind of combined the best, best in, you know, what, what can we do for adapters? What can we do for lean? Because we know, you know, quick change setup times suck for calibration. We're just going to be downright mm-hmm. honest. I mean, uh, yeah. so, some stuff's better than others. Uh, there's, you know, Ryan talks pressure, you know, cleaning, cleaning, how to clean the, how to clean your gauge is probably one of the worst things with pressure, right? Right, Ryan? For sure. <laughs> yeah. With analog ones, that large internal volume. I, I was just talking about that in our school the other day. <laughs> yeah. So all of these people that have know these, you know, disciplines, like a person working in pressure is probably going to be able to tell you, oh, this one's a pain in the butt. And same with force, though. The, the main thing that that people don't get is that the adapters uh, make all of the difference in the world. So if you can get or those, they underestimate, yeah, they underestimate. But the, yeah. the thing with the adapters is if you design them right. If you design them with lean principles in mind, the technician's going to have a whole, it's like a socket wrench set, right? They're going to just be able to right. go in there, get what they need, set everything up, and the company's going to have a return on that investment. They're going to say, oh, why would I buy th- this with $600 when I can buy this that's $400? Well, the $400 thing's going to take your technician 20, 20 minutes longer every time they use it to set it up. You calculate the value of that over time, and you figure out what's the better value, the $600 one that has all the lean principles in mind, or the $400 one that's going to get the job done. However, it's going to take you a lot longer to set up and switch out adapters. So that, that's right. not the realistic pricing. That's just an example. Uh, we see that a sure. lot. Uh, and we're breaking into it. And I love talking about this. So for the, the people that are listening, you start looking at costing. So you say, hey, what's the difference between a $10,000 load cell system and a $6,000 load cell system? Person in purchasing says, well, the $6,000 load cell system will do what we want. So, okay. They buy, they buy the $6,000 uh, load cell system. If it's not as accurate and it does not have good stability, that $6,000, think about this, that $6,000 load cell system, if you want to achieve a certain level of accuracy or you want to achieve a certain uncertainty, they're not the same thing. I can talk about that for, for hours on uncertainty and accuracy. Though if you want yeah. to achieve some <laughs> type of specification and you buy the $600 one and you find out that it's just not as good, you save the money up front. However, to get what you really need, you have to have it calibrated every, say, nine months. Versus the the ten thousand dollar system, you only have to have it calibrated every two years. So start looking at the cost over a ten year period, and the more expensive system is actually less expensive in the long run. The technician can have more confidence in their measurement. The company have can have a lot more confidence in their measurement, and they'll have less downtime because it won't be out being calibrated every nine nine months to a year. So we see right. a lot of this walk in our lab where people just. Uh, it's like, oh, we'll send it back yearly. I, I want, I would need you to uh, an accuracy of uh, 0.01% of full scale. Okay, we'll do it. We get the device in, the device comes back, uh, the device comes in, uh, we adjust it. We adjust it to be better than 
0.01% of full scale. When we say that, we're just talking about bias. We're not talking about repeatability, anything other than bias. Just just mm -hmm. the nominal value is this. I want it to be within 0.01. We adjust it. Comes back the next year. Guess what happens, Ryan? What's Fails. What happens? It fails. And we adjust it again. And guess what happens then? It goes out, comes back in another year, and it fails. And guess what happens when you go look at the scope of accreditation? Guess, what's the, well, guess what the claim is? The highest possible um, or the, high, the best possible uncertainty. It's 0.01. But yet every year when it comes in for calibration, it fails. So this is this is one of those this is one of those things when people people you talk to people drift any load cell system, whether you're, you're looking at accuracy, uncertainty or whatever, you have to look at the drift. If, if, it, if it is coming back to that manufacturer or if it's coming back to the calibration laboratory and is always being flagged as out of tolerance, you need to buy better equipment or you need to shorten the interval if you want to maintain and claim that 0.01%. So that's, that's right. We see that a lot because you were talking about some errors. But yeah, what else? What else can we talk about? <laughs> oh yeah, well no, it, that's all good because I was all I was also going to say you know when we when we look at the training and everything and and the the stuff you talk about you know because I know earlier you said it's kind of a selfish endeavor to do this training. I I still think though that it's not complete marketing because it's also sharing solutions and and you guys are very big on. Find, like you were saying, you see the problems that the customer has and you just want to present people the solutions that you've found. Good example for me is those button load cells. I've I've hated those every time I had to call them, you know. <laughs> yep. And when, you know, meeting you, you guys, I was that was you released that after we met. Right. Or was I, that something you've always had? I believe so. It was something we we always we had it internally in our lab. Uh, some of these solutions we have, we, we had, you know, cooked up in our lab and then we're like, why don't we put a uh, pamphlet together, a brochure together and sell that uh, because it can yeah. help other people. That specific adapter, we had it in our lab and the, and the, and the thought process, uh, yeah, started, started to come out like, you know, we're doing this, we're getting these better results. Why, you know, why aren't we marketing this or, or, or doing that? And, uh, and what Ryan was talking about is, yeah, we made these adapters that uh, essentially improve the measurement, it just improve the alignment. And by just improving the alignment, it had a 525% improvement. Uh, and what was, you know, 1% without the adapters, we could not get re repeatability within 1%. We got it within uh, point, point 0.2. So yeah, that's, uh, it was actually like point, uh, 0.19 or, you know, 198 or something like that. Though, um, though Ryan, you, you had said with the, the adapters and, and some of the other stuff that it's the solutions <laughs> and the, the training about, uh, yeah, I mean, marketing, I, I wanted to be clear. No, our, our, our goal, or at least my goal is to educate uh, and help educate the, the customer base because they spend the one thing I hate more than anything else is redoing work. I freaking hate it when you're a lab and you're in a technician and something fails and you're just sitting there and you don't know why it failed or you're scratching your head or, or you're gonna try to pull your, the REM method, rectal extraction method, you're gonna try to pull something out your butt. Uh, it just, it just, <laughs> yeah. It's just really, really frustrating. So if, if we can help other people be better, I mean, that's what we wanna do. And, and in the end, it, it is all about safety because um, you know, you're gonna ask your question, though everything, the cars we drive, you know, the, the, the safety tests, crash tests, this is all involves force measurement. If they don't get these things right and they get the wrong measurements, 
bad things happen. Uh, there's a great book uh, about uh, uh, by Henry Petrosky called The Engineer is Human. And I highly recommend anyone read that. It talks about, you know, just failures from people not getting measurements correct from the, a, a failure where a whole, you know, 200 some people were, were, were killed because of a structure collapse. Uh, they talk about, uh, you know, engineers, uh, as great as engineers are, because, you know, there are, there really are problem solvers in this world is, as great as they are. A lot of them get, you know, they have these long equations and all it takes is, uh, you know, a plus sign to be a minus sign. Uh, in one of these equations to get it wrong and get the calculation uh, completely off where you have something that's not safe. So there, therefore, testing normally solves that problem and, and gives us that good feel. Uh, you know, we recently had yeah, a, for sure. we recently had a lot of uh, equipment that came in that if we wouldn't have tested, we would have sent out bad product. We bought uh, load balls from a third party vendor that were rated to 200,000 pounds and they all destroyed at 98,000. You know, they didn't even make it to twice. And, I, you know, people are buying these in everyday, everyday situations and saying, hey, this is rated into 200,000. Let's go throw this in here without testing. And on those, they're going to have mass failures because, you know, 98,000 is nowhere near 200,000. So with that, yeah, I, I wanted to get that out and just let, let people know that, you know, it, it's this measurement. It is important. I do look forward to future discussions where we can talk about TAR, TUR, uh, importance of measurements, uh, basically any topic. There's no topic that uh, I think is, is is off limits with any of them. Reading reading certificates. You have yeah. a lot. I, I, I like some of your hot button issues that you have, you know, like the the TAR versus TUR. And that's, that's, I think is a big one that we'll discuss in a, a future podcast now at this point, because that, that one is huge, you know, and you mentioned it, the, I came from the military. I was an instructor in the military. We went strictly off of TARs and that's how, and I guess we should stop using acronyms for those listening, a test to accuracy ratio, basically saying you want your standard that you're doing the test to be four times more accurate than the thing that you're testing. And, you know, back in the day, they were also looking at 10 to ones. I, I think you, yeah, so, you know, knew that back in the seventies and stuff. So that was, that all came about, I guess, work that Eagle did in the, in the fifties. And then Jerry Hayes, uh, I think it, it continued it. And the real, the real, the real thought, cause we're going to discuss it all later. The, the real thought here was saying, hey, if I if I can minimize my risk, if I have a device that is four times, if I send it out to a lab, that's at least four times more accurate. And that was the that was some of the thought process that came about. Uh, I believe, you know, that was uh, somewhere U.S. Navy, uh, 19, sure. 1950s. And then they did a 10 to one. Uh, but. Hayes really, he realized that it, it 10 to one was probably not feasible. So they did more, more, uh, four to one, uh, right. ratio that was established and, and adopted by the Navy though. What, what, when we start talking about that, and, and it's, it's really important to say, if it's a, if it's a closed system, if you're in the Navy and you can say, Hey, we have these standards, we need these to be four times more accurate. We're going to do a 1% device. We want four times more accurate, we want 0.25, you can contain it. And that's the beauty of TAR. However, if we start talking about metrological traceability, where you know each calibration contributes to the overall measurement uncertainty, if we wanted to propagate four to one TAR, we would start at a four to one. So my the next lab has to be four times better. The lab 
Uh, the next lab after that has to be 16 times better, 64 times better, 256 times better, 1,024 times better. It's just impossible to sustain more than a couple of, uh, if we use a pyramid, more than a couple right. of peers in the tier uh, pyramid. Uh, four to one is impossible. I, you know, and same with people saying traceable to NIST. That's another topic that, that drives me. One of my peeves. Yes, that's your, another, so yeah, that your, one, another one of your hot buttons. <laughs> yeah, that's a hot button. And it's easy. So if, if people here, if one thing you can change, you can take away a few things. You can take away, I better pay, start paying attention to adapters. The other thing to take away on all your Cal certs, if you're not doing force or doing anything else, you should not be saying traceable to NIST. That is not right. It's traceable to SI. And then you, I know people say, hey, that's not, but my customers ask for traceability to NIST. You can be correct in saying, hey, on our Cal certs, instead of traceable to NIST, change the statement to traceable to SI units through NIST. Something right. like that. That language is so much better and more technically correct. And you can start helping other people uh, be more correct and say, Hey, I really, I just, you know, I want, I want you to be traceable, I, but I want, I want you to know that I want to know that NIST somewhere is involved. And that is one of the biggest things because I, I bought a torque wrench off of, uh, Amazon one time just for the calibration, uh, sticker, not sticker Ryan, but just for the, I needed to see the sheet and the sticker because it yeah, said you wanted it was, to check it out. It said it was traceable and it came with this little sheet of paper that says this is to certify this is traceable to the NIST. And I just laughed. I I, I lost that. I, I, I wish I kept that sheet. I, I just laughed so hard when I got that because it tells you nothing. It tells me it doesn't tell me that it's my measurements good or bad. It basically just said at some point something that NIST calibrated was was used in this chain. They could be 20 steps away from this. They could have gone, this could have done, and plus it was torque, and this does not do torque. That's a whole other discussion. This, this will do force, and this will do length, but they will not do, uh, they will do, not do uh, torque. So, Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> no, they're not. So if you want to know what your NMIs can do, you can log on to the, I think it's the CIPM website, and you can find out. Uh, through sure. the BIPM and the CIPM and all that. You can find out no, who, I look, who can do I've what. looked at that before. I never thought... Uh... No. I guess I just didn't notice that uh, torque wasn't on there. <laughs> no, there was a demand back in the 1970s for uh, torque, and they, they they never did it. They did some really cool research <laughs> projects with it, and uh, they just determined uh, there was a need, a national need in the 70s, and it just uh, we petitioned to become a designated institute. And for those that don't know, that means that NIST is basically going to say, hey, Morehouse is designated to do all torque calibrations at a very high primary level. This does not designate uh, anyone in the in the U.S. to do this. So that was an uphill battle. It was really cool and mm -hmm. really fun. We could talk about that at, at some point. But all yeah, the powers, all the powers that be, presenting and doing everything with NIST, and, and ultimately, it's uh, they they have one one other uh, company. Uh, designated and it was uh, for viscosity and it's kind of grand. The, the rumor is it's kind of grandfathered that they're not going to designate gotcha. anybody, uh, anybody anytime soon to do anything, even though we do have the second most accurate standard in the world. So but you had, yeah, one that makes sense. you had a final question, I think. Well, yeah, I, well I, to, to end things up, I mean, we got about 10 minutes or so to talk about it. Okay. Um, I, I kind of want to all my guests throw out kind of a special question. Um, and for mine, for you, we're talking about all this training that you and I both do, you know, you being a part of the school as well. And we're talking about, you know, you mentioned some of the real world implications of 
the errors that can be there. But what, in your words, why should people listen to us? You know, um, why, what is that implication of bad uh, calibrations, especially in force measurements? You know, outside of, you know, you mentioned loss of lives. It's there a really good example that you have of why even those small things like the adapters and all that, when they add up can cause real world problems. They all can solve. It's a great question. I love the question. Uh, is there a specific, what, what ideally uh, for those that, that are listening is, is yeah, force, force matters. You talk about loss of life. You can talk about uh, uh, launching a satellite. You can talk about, you know, we would go full circle back to, you know, why we exist you know the boiler plates were blowing up they needed a they needed a, a way to to accurately measure these machines because the, the pressure just wasn't enough they needed the proving ring uh dial type indicator in the 50s the space race came uh now they needed to measure rocket thrust so if you don't get that thrust measurement right uh you know just just simple measurements weighing measurements on, on a satellite if you don't get your satellite balanced with fuel and everything else it wobbles and you know what happens you you launch a satellite yeah. and it wobbles. it's not it's not that good uh you know i can't imagine voyager 2 who would be you know would still be communicating if it was wobbly and we get all that information uh really cool stuff because we get all that information back and you know we're we're, we're at we're at th these exciting times with everything so if you're a technician um and the way i really want to answer this question you go to work right uh, many of us are not, you know, self-made millionaires, and I'm sure if, if they are listening to the podcast, that's awesome. If, if you're out there and you are, but many of you are technicians. You go to work. You want to do. The, most people don't wake up and say, "I want to wake up and do the crappiest job I could ever do today." Just, just sit there, see right. if anybody will catch me. You know, not doing any work. And people like you're gonna, you have to earn a living. You're gonna wake up in the morning. You want your job to be fulfilling. There's nothing more fulfilling, I think, than 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 making a measurement and having the utmost confidence in that measurement that hey, this is awesome. This thing is performing fantastic. Uh, and then and then you know that the next level down, that whoever's going to use that equipment is is going to likely have a better starting position. So when I explain this and and when I go about it, I say, hey. When, when someone has their stuff calibrated in a lab, that laboratory issues a certificate and that certificate is what happened at that particular time in that lab. It's not what's gonna happen when you use the device. They're using their fixtures. Uh, hopefully you're sending your fixtures in and they're calibrating it with your fixtures. Their machines are gonna be plumb level, square rigid, have some type of you know low torsion or whatever. They're using machines with different properties. Uh, they're probably using adapters with different properties. If you don't know to send your top blocks in, they're going to be problems. So the big takeaway is that you start at the lab level and the lab gives you the expected performance of that device used under those conditions. The best thing you can right. do is replicate those conditions. If the lab and the customers have the, the, the right discussions, like this is how we use it in the field, that this adapter, this interface, this bolts in here, this does that. Now we can get more concise with that measurement. Now we can understand the practicality of, of how it's being used in the field. And when we understand that and can replicate that, we give our customers more of a chance to be right. Now they will derate it. They will use it in different environmental conditions. They will use it with different operators. The operators need training. They will do everything else. But the 
good starting point to make sure that you know the the cars you ride in, the bridges you drive on, the airplanes you fly on are all doing what they need to be doing is getting that calibration right at the level, at the highest levels. And disseminating not only the metrological, metrological traceability, but knowing that the next tier down, we're, we're, doing, we're doing work in our dead weight machine. We have a 120,000 pound dead weight machine, primary standard. We're doing work in that machine that the next person's gonna use a, a load cell and a calibrating machine, and they're gonna certify something and they're going to do it and they're going to they're going to know that uncertainty you know that doubt they're going to know that right uh and they're going to be in a good starting position when you're not in that good starting position and you mess up at the top or the next level down every single measurement is affected so when you think about this say the we do a cow and the next level down didn't send their top block and they're off by half percent and now they're claiming they're claiming they're good to uh let's say a number of 0.25 so they're off double what they say. The next thing that they calibrate is going to be out by that much. They're going to start adjusting things. Somewhere down the line, right. people are going to have accuracy specifications, and they're going to keep adjusting them, and they're going to adjust them all out of tolerance. So it's it's more when you go to work and you calibrate an instrument, it's more than one. The instrument you calibrate, if you send out bad data and they use and or the customer uses it wrong or a combination of both, it's just going to propagate in every other every single measurement down the line. And then therefore something's going to get tested and pass when it shouldn't. And, you know, right. many of us don't care um, uh, some of the dumber things that happen. Many of us don't care if the cookie company overfills our cookie bag that says 16 ounces with 16 and a half ounces because they got a measurement wrong. Legally, right. if they underfill it, uh, they get fined. But if they overfill it, we just get more. So a lot of us don't care. But a plane, uh, uh, you're flying on a plane and the center of gravity, a smaller plane and the center of gravity is wrong. That's a big, big trouble. You're in trouble. Yeah. Your, your takeoff's not going to be good and your landing is really not going to be that good. So um, yeah, so it's, it's the impact of the measurements you make. So those that are going out, waking up in the morning, uh, if you're not loving calibration, it's not always the greatest job, but if you're not loving the doing what you do and the importance of what you do and how it impacts other people and how it impacts everyday life, you probably should be somewhere else because it is a freaking cool, cool job and it is a cool group of people. And I am so privileged to be part of the metrology community in so many ways that we can have these discussions and we can talk and we can make the difference that we want to make in the world. Right. You, I couldn't have said it better. And, you know, I, the only thing I'm going to add, because I think you said it all so perfectly, is that technicians, it's OK to raise concerns about your setups. Oh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> you know, if you if you feel like things are not right or if you're on site and you don't have the proper things, don't wing it. That's all that I think we're trying to get out of out of this podcast. Don't wing it. It is that important, you know. That's a good synopsis. It's the the don't wing it episode. All that talk. For really? Me. Yeah. I should I should <laughs> I should make that the title. Don't wing it. Yeah, because you don't want to. It's it's not if it's not safe. I mean, people push the boundary. You know, they they say you know. Then we they just want to get yeah. the job done. I know how I know. it is. You talk about safety factors, you know, and you talk about this. If you use equipment that's not, you, you know, you could you're dealing with a lot of forces. The, the yeah, I, I mean, we should just we'll have one where we we should have one Ryan where we just talk about all the measurement errors for the people that, that are sure. interested in that. But this is an overview. I, you know, I certainly 
appreciate the time. Appreciate anybody that's listening to this. I hope, I hope. People yeah. If you made out. it this far, <laughs> yeah, if they made it this far. Yeah. If they're listening at this far in, they're really, they're really interested. And that's, that's awesome. So, well, the, the, the plug is that, you know, there's more, there's more training available. So I, I've, I've known Ryan now for what, I've got to, almost two years. Yeah. And uh, there's more training available. There's, uh, you know, the signs doing just a, just an awesome job. And we're at Morehouse. We're, we're happy to be part of anything that is going to spread uh, good good measurement practices to the to the community. Well, it's amazing having you guys apart. I think I think that we can call that a that an episode, Henry. I, yeah. I again really appreciate you being on, and I look forward to talking to you more on the podcast. You know where it's it's more formalized. Thanks once again for listening to the Metrology Today podcast. If you have any ideas for shows or you'd like to be a guest on our show, please contact us at information at signcalibration.com. Thank you once again for listening. Thank you.